1981. 22-year-old Israeli adventurer Yossi Ginsberg spends three harrowing weeks lost in Bolivia's Amazon jungle. Separated from his friends and on the cusp of death, Ginsberg endured more over 20 days than most people do in a lifetime. Despite his ultimate rescue, many lingering questions remain unanswered. Join me as I tell the strange tale of Yossi Ginsberg, Marcus Stamm, Kevin Gale and Karl Ruprichter. Primary sources for this episode include Strange Outdoors, TEDx Melbourne, The Discovery Channel, Washington Post and Jungle by Yossi Ginsberg. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 145 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. I hope that you're all doing well. I am back Um, and I have two new patrons at the start of this to welcome. That is Marie and Kate since the last episode. So welcome on board, ladies. So I had um, a nice birthday. Thank you for uh, your well wishes last week. Uh, I actually woke up very early on the morning of my birthday um, to the news that Queen Elizabeth II had died. Um, If you don't want to hear about this or you just want to get into the episode, I've got a bit of housekeeping to lead up to this episode, so maybe skip forward 10 minutes. Um, So that was bittersweet because I make no qualms about the fact that I... It's weird to say you're a fan of the royal family, but I I love uh, royal history. I love the pomp and the regalia and the ceremony and the ritual and the tradition and the history. And I love the tales of, you know, medieval kings and queens and learning new ones, particularly Tudor history. I love... um, and, you, you know, it's the end of an era, really. I was surprised by how, how kind of emotional I was because I, I thought for a while that she was probably uh, not going to be around for that much longer with how quickly she declined after Philip died. But I was still shocked by my emotions, like so many people that I've witnessed being interviewed or talking about it, you know, um, you feel like you've lost a grandmother of sorts, especially as a nation in under the Commonwealth. Um, Elizabeth II was an amazing woman. Um, I'm not. I don't buy into in ridiculous QAnon stuff. Uh, sorry, and I wish more people knew about what she'd achieved, what she'd overcome, um, what she had done during World War Two. Uh, the the kind of um, the place in history that she holds. Um, she's just an amazing woman and um, I've had a lot of thoughts, you know, over the last week about her and uh, how proud her father would have been of her, um, how proud of Britain I have felt. And in particular, Scotland, um, it's been, I've watched so much of the coverage, uh, all, all of it, because it's a moment in history that you just won't see the magnitude of again. And the fact she died in Balmoral up in the north of Scotland which was her, you know, private place that she loved so much was really meaningful. And when I heard she died there, I kind of felt a little bit peaceful about it. Um, But just the journey down, watching it live, not only is Scotland so beautiful, but the respect and the regalia and the ceremony and the tradition the Scots have shown, you guys just 
you blew me out of the water. Um, I just, you, you, yeah, I just have no words. Um, right through to the procession in, in Edinburgh over the last couple of days, it took me right back to my time in Edinburgh. I've spent a considerable amount of time walking up and down the Royal Mile different reasons to the royal family. I was looking for work in a very bleak winter, um, but it, I was just right there, you know, and just the kilts and the sporins and um, how brilliant they all were, you know. I watched it last night when she's been brought back to Buckingham Palace and just the crowds and listening to what people have to say about her and um, they love, overall, Russell Brand did a really good video of the importance of Queen Elizabeth and even he understands that um, two days after someone dying is not the time to spout off. I don't care what you say uh, about your opinions. That can wait. You're entitled to have them. But um, a family is in mourning and a nation is in mourning. Um, but he kind of talked about the importance of her and how she's just this consistency that no matter how much things change in the world and how scary things feel, she has been that stalwart you know, and that's gone. And I think that's what a lot of people are grieving. Um, so I really just wanted to say that about her and um, say to Britain, you know, you've just done such a beautiful job and I'm sure her funeral will be incredibly beautiful as well. And yeah, I just, I loved you guys already, but I just love you guys even more. I'm so proud to have family in Scotland um, in particular and to have lived in England and um, just your sense of individuality and, um, yeah, I just don't know how to put it. So I'm going to, I'm going to move on. So that was an interesting, um, birthday, but one I won't forget. And obviously one that I'm really, I'm kind of in a bittersweet way, pleased that I share that little connection, um, with Queen Elizabeth. So, Episode 150 is coming up, which seems crazy. And um, what I've decided to do, because people have asked, why can't you leave voicemails on Anchor anymore for you, which you played a lot of them on the 100th episode. And I contacted Anchor and they wrote back that it was turned off and you have to turn it manually back on. And and so I was like, oh, well, God, okay. Um, it used to just be an easy thing to do, but they've done all these updates. So what I'm going to do is before the 150th episode, what I'm going to do is for a couple of weeks, I'm going to turn the option to leave a voicemail on. I'll let you know when that is. And then um, I will turn it off, like, and we'll do it for specific increments kind of thing. Also, if you're a patron or intending on becoming one, but you don't like monthly debits, I have now turned on the new option that Patreon offers, which is annual memberships. Uh, so you can pay for the whole year up front. If you're a current patron and you want to do that because debits annoy you or whatever, you're having issues with cards, a lot of people have said that, um, just go to upgrade, you pay for the year up front and that's the end of that, they won't annoy you again. Um, if you're a new patron, just go and sign up and choose the annual option. So I think that's pretty much all of that. So now I'm going to get into a bit of a lead up of a lot of weird little moments of synchronicity, which I've noticed recently in my life that led to me finding this story, finding other stories related to it that I've added to my list to do. And yeah, kind of um, a bit about 
hella hope that I've added, I can add a bit more um, because a lot of coverage of Yossi Ginsberg's story is all the same over and over again. And there were parts of it that I just really wanted to know more detailed elements of it. I've thought a lot about this, this story since I saw the movie Jungle, which I'll talk about in a minute. And had a lot of questions and I've been thinking about it for about 10 months now since I saw the movie. Um, And I hope that you kind of, yeah, do a bit of digging after this because it may seem like from the intro that Yossi Ginsberg, it's just a survival story, which yes, it is. And that's no secret. He wrote a book, the movie. People know that he's still out there. I'm not trying to cover that up. Also, I have quotes throughout this from Yossi. So clearly he survived. Uh, but there are so many other mysteries in this regarding his other his other travel companions that I've thought a lot about. Um, so this is patron Petra's case request. She did not request this case. She did not request a country. She is from Toronto in Canada or Toronto. I know they don't really say that second team. And she did something a little bit different, which I thought was cool. When she joined and I asked her what her choice was, she requested a natural landscape. So she said, quote, for my location, if you have one on your list that involves someone going missing in some sort of natural landscape, like a national park or reserve, I would love to hear it. Can be any country. After doing a few hiking and canoeing trips solo, I started to be interested in cases of people going missing in those environments. Maybe it's a way to process my fears, unquote. And I thought, yep, I'm going to do Yossi Ginsberg's story because at the moment in the world we need a bit of a story that involves uh, triumphing, I suppose, uh, over the harshest conditions and it may inspire people. And these stories are always important, especially when you're going through, you know, hard times. So last week I wrote to Petra, yours is coming up next. And she wrote back, um, I won't be able to listen to it on time as incidentally, I'll be in Northern Ontario wilderness on a canoe trip with no signal. So she'll listen to it when she gets back. And I thought, oh, she's going to feel weird when I start talking about this because <laughs> these boys were doing that on the southern part of uh, the Americas as well. So that was the first little weird thing. So I'm going to cram this all into uh, two parts for you guys. The way I discovered the story of Yossi Ginsberg earlier this year is a bit of a full circle story of sorts. I'd never heard of him. And the movie about his life came out in 2017 and I had not heard of it when it came out and I didn't hear about it until the start of this year, in fact. Um, so at the start of the year, I found myself watching, which I do every few years, one of my favourite movies. It's my second favourite movie, um, the movie The Pianist. Uh, it is one of my favourite books. It's on my bookshelf. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, it's essentially without ruining it because I want to tell his story at some point, is the story of a pianist in, in uh, Warsaw called Spielmann, which actually means music man in Polish, um, who survived the Holocaust basically through just pure determination and will, um, hiding um, favours from people that he'd known before who respected him as a pianist. Um, and he basically did that for four years. Uh, his family were all sent to Auschwitz. Uh, he was thrown out of the line as they were being boarded onto the cattle cars. And he, um, as a favour from a Jewish police officer, actually, and he told him to, he told him to leave. He told him to walk and not to run, not to draw attention to himself. And he, 
he walked away and there's a famous scene in the movie because Spielman is played amazingly by Adrian Brody as he's walking in a a uh, street in Warsaw and just empty cases everywhere and it's dead silent and um, no matter what you think of Roman Polanski uh, he's an amazing film director and you know cinematographer and um, he's walking in the middle of the street and he's sobbing and it's just dead silent other than that every, everyone's gone and um, I love movies where you, people overcome. My top three movies are Shawshank Redemption, uh, which my brother says that's everyone's favourite movie because <laughs> you never meet anyone who doesn't love that movie. Uh, and it has a lot of meaning for me and I watch it when I need to feel better about the world, you know, and a better about myself and a bit of a pick-me-up. My third is actually Gladiator, which I get a lot of shit for. I just recently watched it, my annual viewing. Um, I have a lot of reasons why I love it. Um, but it's just, you know, I noticed recently that my favourite movies are all people who have overcome, you know, to succeed. And I often think about what helps some people overcome certain things and what what doesn't help others. Like why do some perish and why did some perish um, during the Holocaust or through difficult conditions and just um, and why did some endure through things that most humans just don't have the physical or emotional capacity to overcome what makes these people unique, what made Spielman unique. Um, and it's a central tenet of movies I consider my favourites. Um, so anyone who has seen the movie The Pianist knows that in the probably final 20 minutes without ruining it, even though it's 19 years old, um <clears throat> Spielman receives help from the person least likely to help, you would think. And that happened in real life. And um, I want to tell, you know, their story at some point because it's it's very interesting and it will make you see the world a little bit differently. But one iconic character in the movie The Pianist is played by the <sighs> absolutely divine German actor who no one has heard of and it sucks, Thomas Kretschmann, who... I'm so in love with, have been for years. He is not only gorgeous, he's so underrated, so talented. And unfortunately, because he has that perfect Germanarian look, he's constantly used in Nazi movies as a Nazi to the point where I looked it up and I believe he's been, he's played a Nazi 13 times. <laughs> so when I was watching The Pianist, I decided I wonder what Thomas Crutchman's done recently because I actually follow him online and he's a bit of a photographer and stuff. But I was like, I wonder if he still makes movies because he's in his 50s now. Uh, so I ended up looking up to see if he'd done like an English language movie. He's in The Pianist, which is probably his most famous, even though he's not in it for long. And then he's in a movie called uh, Downfall, which is, I think, Das Untergang in German. And that is that famous movie that became the meme of Hitler yelling at all his generals. And he's in that one. And so I thought, I really want to see Thomas Kretschmann in an English-speaking movie because he always speaks German, you know. So I looked and it said in 2017 he was in a movie called Jungle. So I clicked on it and I had not heard of it. And when I looked at the synopsis, I thought, that seems right up my alley. But initially looking at the synopsis, I thought, oh, it's a fictional story. But very quickly looking into it, because I'm one of those people who, before I watch something, I like look at the background of it, <laughs> which turns out like my dad does that. Like as he's watching something, he's Googling like facts about the filming. And so 
I realized quickly it was a true story and it was the true story based on the book of the memoirs of Three Weeks in the Jungle by an Israeli man who was in his 20s at the time in the early 80s called Yossi Ginsberg. And the synopsis hit all my movie G-spots, as I call them. So I ended up sitting down the next weekend and I watched it and I enjoyed it. And these days when I watch a movie, I forget it immediately because I find that most just have no heart and they just rush through. But I can still remember almost all of it, which indicates to me it's a pretty good movie. Now, my only issue, which I won't get into, is that Daniel Radcliffe is in it. I think he's I just don't like him as an actor. I think he's overrated. Uh, most of the reviews say that he was badly cast in this. It shouldn't have been him, which I totally agree with. Rarely do I watch a movie and spend the entire time trying to think of who would have done it better or just wishing it was someone else. And in this instance, that's how I felt. Um, he just didn't. He's not like Yossi at all when you watch him interviewed. His accent was really annoying, um, which a lot of people who are from Israel said. Um, and he just didn't. He just didn't do it. You know, it wasn't good. But the rest of the people were good and Thomas Kretschmann was awesome and he plays the character of, he was perfectly cast actually, uh, Karl Rupertter, who was a very mysterious character in the story and I'm sure the enduring character that will give you a lot of food for thought. So around the same time, around the same time I started researching this properly because I looked into it pretty heavily when I first watched the movie not knowing when I would eventually do the episode. And I kind of went down a rabbit hole with elements of it. (laughs) But around the same time, I started looking into this in earnest about a month ago for this episode. Um, I came across someone talking, which has kind of had a renaissance of sorts, about a book that's a very famous book uh, by, again, um, a survivor of the Holocaust. Uh, His name is Viktor Frankl and he was a... Austrian psychologist, very revered before the war, very similar story to Spielmann, um, except Viktor Frankl actually went to the concentration camps and was interred there for years. He had a short time in Auschwitz, but mostly it was in Theresienstadt and uh, Dachau. So after the war, Viktor Frankl, who had always looked into, uh, in short, because I'm going to do an episode on him, so I don't want to talk about him too much because I find him fascinating, I just finished his book. It's right next to me. I went and bought his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which was published after the war in the 1950s. In short, when Vienna was invaded, uh, actually Sigmund Freud, I was reading recently, was able to get out to Britain, uh, which is a whole other story that I want to cover as well. Uh, But he was an older man at the time. He was from the first school of psychology in Vienna. Viktor Frankl was a lot younger than him. He was in his, um, I think he was 34, 35. He was recently married. He had been working on kind of the early manuscript for the book Man's Search for Meaning. And all of his studies, especially focusing on suicide prevention, which is an incredible part of his story, uh, preventing suicides of students who had not received the grades that they wanted in high school um, and looking into what helped people endure things that other people don't. And he came back to the conclusion through his entire experience in multiple concentration camps, losing family, losing the first manuscript, 
having to begin completely again. And he, as someone put it, he got the best hands-on psychological experience in the camps that you could possibly get to contribute to what he already knew. Frankel came to the conclusion that what helps people to overcome and what the point of everything is, is meaning. And this sounds very philosophical, but it's it's very important and it's kind of the basis of everything. So Freud believed, um, you know, in his Freudian things, um, it's not just, um, you know, genitals that he talked about. There was a lot of other stuff related to the, but he believed in discourse between psychologist and patient, as we all know. Then after him came Alfred Adler, who is, a lot of his things really hit the spot of what I think. Um, He was the second school of psychology and and he believed, I believe, um, in the collective subconscious that community is everything. And then along came Viktor Frankl, who believed that um, through all of his research that meaning meaning is what gets you through. Um, So as I said, I won't get into that too much as one day I will cover it. Um, Maybe coming up for like a Remembrance Day or something like that. But basically he said that you could find meaning in a number of different things. Uh, He said you could find meaning in love, you could find meaning in duty, or you can find meaning in overcoming uh, and triumphing over the absolute worst things and yet yeah, overcoming basically. And I thought a lot about this researching this story. Uh, Frankel's is obviously way more scientific than I just explained it. But I, when Elizabeth died, I kind of thought she kind of ticks all these boxes. You know, she overcame tragedy with her father dying so young. She she found meaning in duty. She found meaning in love with Philip and her family. And she found meaning in triumphing and leaving such a legacy. Um, you know, Frankel did the same thing. Um, Spielman, you know, found meaning through triumphing um, and, you know, it, in a way leave duty in terms of playing the piano and becoming a revered pianist after the war as well. Um, So I thought a lot about meaning and what pit Yossi Ginsberg apart from other people who have just perished in the Amazon, which seems to happen and has happened since, you know, people have been traversing them. So Yossi Ginsberg wrote a book called Jungle. Uh, it, It wasn't actually, it was about 20 years ago, actually. And when I researched this, I couldn't get a hold of it. I just didn't have the time to read the book. I'd seen the movie and I'd done a huge amount of reading online about him. And then at the 11th hour, two days ago, I found half of the book on Google Books. So I sat down and read half the book and thinking I was reading the whole book. And then it said, you've used up your preview. And I was like, so I went to try to purchase it and it would not let me. And by that point, it was too late to purchase the actual book. But I was relieved because the parts that I was able to read, which was the first half of the book, filled in the gaps that I wanted filled in. That is information about uh, mainly Yossi's travel mates, how he knew them, a bit of information about them and things that I will clear up in part one because there's a lot of conspiracies around it. Um, so it's not a mystery that Yossi survived. Uh, obviously, you've probably seen him interviewed, you've probably seen him speak, but there are other many enduring mysteries in this that kind of give way to every single one you step through a door, (laughs) like it opens up a new one, you know? And I was like, this seems like such a simple story, but there's so many layers of this that have me feeling weird. 
So I thought this was the perfect episode for the current times. It has elements of hope. It's inspiring. There's lessons in it. There's eerie parts of it. And it fits perfectly with what Petra asked for. And that's why I wanted to go into all of that before, because um, I just thought a lot about Frankel and what I was currently reading while I was researching this about finding meaning and actually a lot of things that Yossi said later on about surviving come back to that, although he's of a different school of thought that kind of surrendering and relinquishing any control over the elements is the ultimate way to survive. But they were of the same opinion that even though Victor Frankl has been dead for quite a while, that being in that state of abject survival um, is important for finding meaning in your life. And you can't argue that Yossi didn't when we get into the rest of his life in part two. Now, I just want to say I cannot go into every detail of Yossi's experience. Every single, I'm talking about four men in this story. Please don't email me with corrections or adding different things. Um, It would take 20 parts to do that. Um, So I've just chosen what is important. And if I leave anything out, it's on purpose. I do have um, a correction that I received from someone on the Livia and Alessia Shep episode last week uh, that I'll read to you next week, which is actually the full the full letter that Matthias Shep left that someone has translated from Italian. So I've added that for next week because we already had enough in housekeeping this week. Um, so this is not meant to be a complete version of his story for that. Read his many books, uh, Yossi Ginsberg, or watch him speak. There's no shortage of that. Or if you're in Australia, hire him to speak. Now, normally um, I'm speaking for people who are missing or no longer with us. Rarely, if anything, am I speaking for people who are still alive. Um, and I probably won't do his story justice in any way. Um, so I will, I will do my best. Josef Ginsberg was born on April 25th, 1959 in Tel Aviv, Israel. Now, his full name is Josef, which is a really common Hebrew name spelt with a Y at the start, uh, the Hebrew version of Joseph. But the common nickname for it is Yossi. Uh, I've seen some people say Joshi. That's not right. I've listened to Hebrew people say it. Uh, so I'll be saying uh, Yossi. So that's the common nickname and that's what Yossi goes by. So that's what I'll be calling him. Now, as I just talked about in the intro, uh, this is another part that kind of ties in to Frankel and the pianist and Thomas Kretschmann and all of that is that Yossi's parents were both Holocaust survivors who after the war uh, migrated to Israel, met and started a family and 14 years after the end of the war, uh, the Second World War, they they had Yossi. Yossi was a born explorer from a young age. He talks about this at length if you watch him interviewed and there's no shortage of interviews of him. They did an episode, which I can't talk about in part one because it'll ruin parts of it, um, of a show that's kind of like I survived. Uh, the comments in it on the video were not kind towards Yossi and that's another thing I'll talk about in part two because this is the problem with those shows. Uh, it's a 40-minute uh, dramatic very heavily edited dramatization of what happened. These people conceded they hadn't read the book, they'd never heard of Yossi, so they're going off that. And it was just edited to make him and other people seem uh, callous and uncaring and that's just not the sense and people need 
to kind of instead of standing on their soapboxes, like immediately and just go into the comments, like maybe go and do a bit of research and don't just think like a Discovery Channel show is the be all and end all. Um, also, I feel that a lot of people in this story I noticed were, uh, in a way, they kind of lived up to the stereotype of their nationality, which I'll get into. Uh, and Israelis are very, uh, I really like them. They're very, I find them very stoic and um, proud of their country and patriotic. And they're not like a lot of nationalities, you know, including Germans, they're not always come across as the warmest people and you don't have to be, you know, like that in order to be a good person, which is another thing that people seem to forget. Um, sometimes it's, you know, everyone's unique. So I find Yossi a very chatty and likeable man then seemingly and now. Um, you can tell he's very amiable in interviews and speeches when you watch him speak. But you can also tell that despite the fact that he seems friendly, you should not mistake his friendliness for weakness. And I think that Yossi always knew internally as obviously the the first generation born in Israel to Holocaust survivor parents, they already have that internal fortitude, I feel like, built into their DNA. And a lot of people comment on how maybe that is why Yossi survived what he did if he wasn't, you know, um, descended from tough people. Israel has compulsory military service. They have since, you know, since the start of Israel. Um, well, not the start of Israel, but like the the founding of Israel um, as it is today post-war. They have it for a reason. It's the, as someone put it, the never again mentality post-Holocaust. So everyone has to do it, including women. Now there are a lot of exceptions, but it's it's not easy. And it's actually quite a considerable amount of time that it takes out of it. The Israeli Defense Force is called the IDF for short, you may know, like in your local community, you may have an IDF school. I've got one near me. They teach Krav Maga and things like that. And they're renowned for being some of the toughest uh, militaries in the world and uh, pioneered things like Krav Maga, which I guess you know from Taken. It's it's kind of those techniques that they pioneered. So as soon as you're 18, you have to enlist. And you basically, I looked at the IDF website as it is, and it has been for decades. They do a medical, and then from there, they put you where they think that you're better suited to. And in this instance, Yossi was put in the Israeli Navy, uh, which I thought a lot about in terms of um, overcoming maybe training with water and things like that. And I haven't seen people talk about that. So once you enlist in the IDF, men are expected to serve a minimum of 32 months. I'm talking about Jewish Israelis. You can also go there as a foreign Jew. There's a lot of Americans who go to Israel to do the conscription. Uh, men do 32 months and women are expected to do 24 months. The exceptions are if you're, I believe, a married woman, a woman with children, if you've got a serious, it has to be pretty serious medical condition that stops you from doing it. Um, and there's a number of other other exemptions. I believe uh, 20% of exemptions are accepted. So it is very physically in, it, tough. I could not do it. Uh, but according to a lot of people I read about their experiences online, they say it made them realise what they are capable of, which I thought a lot about in Yossi's story, obviously. 
I read an interesting account of the time spent in the IDF by a American-born Jewish man who went over in 2010 because he felt a duty, despite not speaking Hebrew, to conscript and do his 36 months military service with the IDF. And one part of the piece that he wrote, which was in Vox, but it was extracted from his personal journals of the time, uh, really stood out to me. His name's uh, Joseph Lenoff. And he wrote, quote, I was able to train with some of the most capable soldiers in Israel. From the start, I was humbled by my platoon mates' capabilities. I was a talented football player and athlete, but my platoon mates, these scrawny Israeli dudes, would be up and down the rope before I even figured out my foot placement. One day I was having trouble getting up over the wall, just trying over and over and I couldn't do it. My lieutenant looked me in the eye, stared into my soul and told me calmly, Joseph, you will get up that wall. And I did. So much of what seems like physical training in the army is ultimately just mental. The the purpose of physical hardship during basic training, I would learn, was not to get soldiers into better physical shape, though that is a happy side effect, but to teach the soldier that his own body will lie to them about limitations and that even so, he must push through it. Other times, physical limitations are real limitations and I would learn that too, unquote. Now, would Yossi have survived what he did, which you'll learn about, if he hadn't served for 36 months until he was 21 in the IDF? I can't answer that. But another element of, you know, his, you know, his genetics with his parents and the ancestral trauma, I suppose, add to that the IDF training. I feel like it was a pretty good basis for a pretty tough guy. So Yossi spoke to TEDx Melbourne a couple of years ago uh, and he talked about how the day he was released from IDF, he was ready to go. He'd been, he had always been an adventurous free spirit and he felt very constrained by the military, but he had done his national duty. So he said literally the minute, the day he was out, he flew to Norway on a one-way ticket. It was freezing cold. It was winter there. And he said he worked on a construction site for the entire winter, just putting a away money. Uh, he saved money and he headed over to Alaska where he worked on fishing boats. I always meet Israelis everywhere. We've got a big community in Melbourne um, and they seem to travel a lot. Like you meet them everywhere. But being ex-IDF, Yossi did not obviously shy away from hard labor. And he explains that he like I'm talking about with meaning, and it will come back to that over and over again, what Frankel said, Yossi said he understood the meaning of what he was doing because it was putting money in his pocket so he could do what he wanted to do. So, you know, it was mandatory to get where he wanted to get to. Yossi had grown up fascinated by the story of a man called Henry Charrier. Now, if you don't know who Henry Charrier is, I've decided the Unknown Passage podcast drinking game will be, I plan on covering his story in an upcoming episode, quote unquote, uh, because this is another story that I've had on my list forever, but it is such a massive story. Uh, I've seen the movie probably five times because it was one of my mum's favourites. It is based on, it's basically a Frenchman it's Papillon, the book that he wrote, which you may know, it means butterfly in French. Henry Charrier was like an escaped convict who was sent to this, uh, I can't remember what exactly country it was. It wasn't, uh, it was around Venezuela area. It was a small one, um, maybe French Guinea. 
from memory. And he was sent to this prison colony there. His story is insane. You would think that he made it up, but he didn't. And he escaped from this prison colony and he went on the run and he lived this crazy life. And that became a successful memoir in the form of the massive book, which is huge, uh, which has always put me off reading it, called Papillon. This became a classic movie starring Steve McQueen as Henry Charrier and Dustin Hoffman. And uh, you'd probably remember very uh, iconic parts of the movie if you've seen it. Yossi was obsessed with Hun- Henry Charrier as like a budding free spirit adventurer. He wanted to live just like him, uh, I guess minus the prison colony part. And there's a part where Charrier goes to a leper colony and they make him share a uh, cigar. He probably didn't mean that part. Uh, he wanted a life of adventure and particularly he was drawn to the jungles of uh, Central and South America. And um, I guess be careful what you wish for. Charrier actually died in 1973. So Yossi was only a teenager. And so he was kind of let down because his dream was always to uh, go to meet him wherever he was. And Charrier actually died in Spain. By the age of 20 or 21, Yossi had completed his military service. He then travelled across parts of Africa and across to Mexico. Um, And his time in Mexico was his first taste of the Americas or Latin America. And it gave him a taste for what would become one of his biggest driving forces and the central tenet of his life, which was the jungles of Central and South America. And his sights were on the mother of all jungles, the Amazon. We have been to both the Brazilian and Peruvian portions of the Amazon uh, for the story of Emma Kelty recently, who was a British kayaker who was unfortunately murdered while trying to uh, kayak the length of the Amazon basin, basically from from uh, city to sea, as they put it. But this was decades before and Yossi in the early 80s had his sights set on a more wild experience. As he puts it, he wanted to go deep into the Amazon. He wanted to discover untapped civilizations and tribes that had never seen, you know, a white man had been completely isolated from society. Now, you know I'm not totally on board with this. There are elements of Yossi that are a bit um, kind of... <laughs> I don't know, I'll get into it, kind of. His personality is a bit out there, uh, which if you've seen a picture of him now, you will know he's like a shaman. Um, And he wanted to, he told TEDx Melbourne two years ago, I decided I would write my own book and be my own hero, unquote. He went on to tell TEDx Melbourne uh, that in his mind's eye, he saw himself traversing the most remote parts of the jungle, being accepted into a tribe, marrying a woman in the tribe in a shamanic ceremony. And that was the manifest manifestation in his head. Now, that all sounds very crazy, but as you'll notice uh, in part two, crazy things happen and maybe he did manifest that. But in no point when he talks about... <laughs> his plans for the and his dreams for the uh, jungle does he talk about um eating monkeys and such so Yossi saved money from various jobs he went back to Israel he worked this is the early 80s things were cheaper and South America was dirt cheap Bolivia uh the you know it was like a dollar a night uh, for a really nice hotel when Yossi was there, according to his book. And 
once he got his money together in Israel, he bought a ticket to South America and he flew to Venezuela. This was the 80s. South America was still largely untouched by commercial tourism. And really the experience at this time was at its most authentic. Tourism numbers were the lowest they had been, particularly in Bolivia, where this takes us to. And Yossi hitchhiked to save money, which, you know, as a tough, tall, young, strapping Israeli man, um, I doubt anyone was going to mess with him in this instance. And he was probably also tipping them pretty good money as well. From Venezuela, he hitchhiked all the way to Colombia. In Colombia, uh, he met a fellow Western traveller. Now, this guy will be one of our main four, so these is one of the reasons why I was glad that I got access to at least half the book so I could understand a little bit more that is missing from the movie Jungle and missing from most accounts. They just brush over these other men. They brush over Marcus and Kevin and Carl and Yossi is kind of the central element of every story. But I had a lot of questions about these other guys. Um, so, and I wanted to know more about their personalities. And so read Jungle if you want to know that. But In Colombia, he met a Swiss teacher who was uh, 28 years old and his name is Marcus Stem. Now, Marcus was on the same path as Yossi spiritually and physically and the two quickly clicked up and they lived this dream life of travelling around when they felt like it and going to amazing places. Marcus had been there for uh, seemingly a couple of years uh, because later... Uh, they would refer to the fact that Kevin had known him on and off. They'd kept running into each other on their travels uh, for about eight months before they ultimately went where they went. Uh, Now, Marcus was a tennis champion back home and there's a lot of talk, which I'll get into in part two, did Marcus really exist in all these crazy conspiracy theories? Yes, there is Uh, local press back in Switzerland. His sister became a politician. His family is mentioned. And before he went to South America, he was a local tennis champion in Switzerland. Uh, He was tall and athletic. Now, according to Strange Outdoors and also the book Jungle, they talk about how Marcus had come to South America to get over a breakup. And he then met Yossi and kind of perked up and stuff like that. Now, reading Jungle, Yossi talks a lot about how he paints a good picture of Marcus in terms of Marcus is different to the rest of the guys in this story. Marcus seems very sensitive, very emotional, uh, very prone to stress. I really, really empathised with Marcus. He gets a lot of uh, shits in the coverage of this. Um, I feel like he was a very compassionate guy without saying so much. I feel that he, uh, had a respect for animals and the world around him. Um, that's what I got in one part. Yossi talks about how they were traveling around and meeting women and Yossi would have these one nighters with women and he's very upfront. And that's what I really like about Yossi, but people don't, He's upfront about what a kind of jerk he was in his early 20s with these women. He'd sleep with a girl and then there's a part that kind of you go, oh, God, where he says he left and he goes, I had no plans to see her again, even though I told her that I had. And he's kind of painting a picture of who he was before and who he was then. And he was a guy in his early 20s, like you can't fault him, you know, and I really respected the fact that he was so honest about it. 
Marcus, on the other hand, was meeting these women and he was immediately falling in love, you know, with them. And he'd recently, uh, when they went on their trek in the Bolivian Amazon in La Paz, he'd met this woman and he would suddenly proclaim that he was in love with her and he was going to go traveling with her and they would be, you know, in love with each other. And I think that kind of got on Yossi's nerves because Yossi holds his feelings a lot more close to his chest and he was a bit like, oh, here we go again kind of thing. He'd been dealing with it for months and months, um, <laughs> you know, like almost a year with Marcus at this point. Um, so they explored Peru and Ecuador and they were just young, free spirits. Yossi talks at one point about uh, eating this cactus that they were meant to stew. It was uh, not ayahuasca. It was a local Bolivian cactus with this this girl that he'd met. And he goes in, if you want to read like a little bit something a little bit sexy, guys, read Jungle. Um, he just talks about how he was tripping out and she was tripping out and then he wakes up and he, he leaves, you know, basically. Um, and I will talk about what situation Bolivia was in at the time because he does reference the fact that this whole free-spirited aspect when they get to Bolivia is happening in the midst of a military dictatorship. Um, so when they would go off in these little kind of spurts into uh, jungles outside of cities and things like that through Peru and Ecuador and Colombia and that, Yossi basically says that when he got to these places, he realised, quote, civilization had come to these tribes, unquote. And this really let him down because when he looked up to Henry Charrier and running into leper colonies and these untouched tribes and his amazing kind of story of adventure, he thought he would do the same, but he'd realised that time had gone by. Charrier had done it decades before and unfortunately civilization, i.e. a lot of logging companies had started at this point and continue on today in the Amazon they'd already gone and like modernized a lot of these tribes, which if you've traveled, you'll notice that when you're told in Thailand, visit the hill tribes, and then you get there. And me and my friend were just like, wow, this is the most commercial thing ever. They're selling jewelry they see as handmade. And we just saw the same exact stuff in shops in Chiang Mai. And you feel a bit ripped off, you know, it's all for for the tourism. Um, and eventually Yossi and Marcus made their way to the country of Bolivia and they found themselves in the very fascinating capital city of La Paz in 1981. I also meant to add that in the book, uh, one part that stood out to me when Yossi talks about Marcus is that Marcus would say he was clairvoyant, which is never mentioned anywhere else, and take that how you will, but he sat down one day in La Paz and very earnestly told Yossi, I'm clairvoyant, I can tell things, I can sense things. Back in Switzerland, people come to me to tell their fortunes. I don't take money, I just, like, can feel things. And I think that he said people would ask if um, when they were pregnant, if they were having a boy or a girl, and he would always tell them the correct answer. And he said that he had kind of, the Aussie alludes to the fact that Marcus would kind of use this clairvoyance to get himself around and where he would end up. And I thought a lot about that with Marcus in terms of choices he would make coming up in their journey, whether if you believe in that stuff or some people are more in tune with the universe, did Marcus have a feeling when he was a bit more apprehensive about this trip that something wasn't right uh, or later on did he have that feeling as well. 
At 3,650 metres above sea level, which is 11,975 feet, uh, Bolivia's capital, La Paz, is the highest capital city in the world. Many people who go to La Paz experience severe altitude sickness, which we talked about at length on the recent Everest episodes. And it generally requires, if you're going to La Paz, some serious time, downtime when you get there to acclimatize. And it's something that you kind of deal with constantly. Now, obviously, the population has grown to just be used to it. Uh, People exist with that lower level of oxygen in their system but it really hits a lot of tourists hard. Yossi doesn't talk too much about this element in the book and I don't think it affected him too much because I feel like his IDF training, he'd gone through quite a lot. So things like that didn't kind of paled in comparison. Bolivia is a landlocked South American country. It is bordered to the north and east by Brazil, to the south by Argentina. Chile is to its southwest Paraguay is to its southeast and in its northwest is Peru, which where we're going for this episode is in the northwestern portion of the massive country of Bolivia up towards the Peruvian border. La Paz really isn't that far from the Peruvian border and then you get up to Cuzco, which is another place we've gone to for this where you go to do the Inca Trail and another very high altitude city. Famous for its plethora of landscapes spanning from the Amazon rainforest, uh, the Amazon River, the massive canyons, the Andes Mountains. The Andes actually take up a third of Bolivia's landmass and drinking game. We'll be doing at one point a very famous story of the Andes, which you may know. At some point I want to do it because it's one of my favourite stories. The Spanish-speaking country is home to 12 million people, around 89% who identify as Christian. It is a huge, physically huge country. I believe it's the, from memory, it's the 27th biggest in the world. And it has roots spanning back to the Inca Empire. Spanish colonization in Bolivia happened here in the early 16th century. And they realized very quickly that Bolivia was very important to them because uh, minerals and silver and copper were abundant here and they mined that here. And that became a massive driver or economic driver of the Spanish empire in this region. In World War II, I found it interesting to read something that I didn't know, that Bolivia actually joined the Allies and declared war on the Axis, which I thought was very interesting considering surrounding it were countries like Argentina and Chile, which post-war became a haven for not only Germans uh, and Europeans escaping Europe, but also the hiding place very openly of an many famous Nazis and a drinking game. Um, I've got about five massive big kahunas on my list to discuss uh, because you know I love the topic of Nazi hunters. So Bolivia kind of held off um, on joining that but then you've got Argentina and you've got Juan Perón and Eva Perón next door who despite Andrew Lloyd Webber making a Vita, uh, Eva Perón, this kind of – 
operatic, I suppose, hero played by Madonna for some reason later. Um, it's important to note that Eva and Juan Perón openly gave safe passage to some of the worst Nazis who did uh, horrific things, including Adolf Eichmann and um, Joseph Mengele, who lived out his years in these parts. And if you believe it and you believe the book that I'm currently reading, Adolf Hitler as well. A decade before Yossi found himself in Bolivia, the relatively politically stable socialist country was thrown into chaos when it was taken by a coup or one of my favourite words, a junta, by military leader Hugo Banza. Banza was backed by the American CIA, socialist norms were out and the new dictatorship assassinated the standing president to prove it. By 1978, though, Banza was then ousted and he would be gone for 40 years. And then in 1997, he would then come back to be democratically elected until 2001. When Yossi and Marcus found themselves in Bolivia in the early 80s, it was a very unstable time. They were in the midst of another military coup and uh, subsequent military coups that continued to happen. And they were living this kind of free-spirited cactus-based lifestyle amongst uh, the onset of what was extreme poverty and protests and riots and things like that. And finally, in 1982, um, a president was democratically elected. Uh, But it wouldn't be the people, which is the most common thing on this podcast, that the person in question for this episode would be up against or at risk of. It would be the elements, unbelievably, despite this being such a hectic time. Bolivia is an extremely poor developing country, which I've heard incredible things about. Uh, It continues to improve itself and rise in terms of the human development index. And as with the beginning of the Spanish colonization, minerals like silver, copper and tin continue to be the major economic drivers. And there's there are big kind of mining quarries, um, particularly in the Amazon and, uh, you know, deforestation is pretty upsetting. The country continues to be politically unstable. And from what I understand from researching this, I knew about this guy, but I didn't know the extent of how seemingly corrupt he is. A lot of the issues stem from the uh, controversy surrounding the former president, Evo Evo Morales. Now, I'm sorry if I pronounce any of this wrong. I looked them up how to say it, but actually Spanish is not a language that I find easy to pronounce. I just can't do it. Um, So in short, Morales, they were only allowed to do one term from what I could understand, but he just kept changing the constitution in the way that, you know, Mugabe or any kind of dictator who comes in, uh, this was like a socialist guy. So surprise, surprise. Um, He kept giving himself new terms and going to court. And when there would be a referendum or the people would speak, he would just say, oh, no, no, Um, we're doing it my way. Long story short, um, he would say that term limits were a human rights violation upon himself, which I literally laughed out loud when I read that. 
This continued up to 2019 uh, with a very dodgy election, uh, which any person looking at it would know that something was amiss. He was behind substantially and then suddenly he won it by a landslide. Uh, This gave way to massive protests in Bolivia, which you would not have even heard about in 2019 because the rest of the world just doesn't care about these parts of the world and it's not interesting to the media. After weeks of protests, um, Morales eventually resigned. He basically said uh, that he felt like he had to in order to restore the peace of the country. Now, they had a general election in 2020, I believe, which they tried (laughs) to put off, you know, yada, yada. uh, And they, well, they had put it off for a year and then they said, no, we have to do it. They had a record voter turnout, uh, the highest number of people who voted ever uh, just two, not even two years ago. It was 88% of the population. And surprise, surprise, despite all the protests against uh, this socialist party called MAS, which Morales was behind, and all the upset and seemingly the massive swell of support for the, uh, you know, non-Marxist party, uh, they won by a landslide, the Socialist Party, again. So they were in. Uh, They got 55% of the vote, apparently, as opposed to 28% for the centrist guy who was running, Carlos Mesa. So the Socialists, everyone wanted out a back, which seems to be repeating itself all across South America, weirdly. Tourism-wise, Bolivia is largely safe for tourists. It really is. They actually consider it the safest place in South America. And I've known women who have travelled there. I wouldn't recommend alone, but in pairs or in groups who said that Bolivia, they felt the safest and, and nothing happened. And it's becoming rapidly more and more popular with international tourists. Popular destinations in uh, Bolivia include La Paz, the, uh, well, it's one capital, we'll get into that. Uh, the Ayuni salt flats, which are the famous salt flats, which have unfortunately become like an Instagram influencer hotspot. Lake Titicaca, which is up in the area we'll be going to today and it bought, that spreads into Peru. The Andes Mountains, which take up a large portion of the landscape of Peru. The world's most dangerous road, which you've probably heard of, and if you haven't, look up pictures of it. Uh, it's become quite a hot spot for adventure seekers. People fall off it all the time. And, of course, the Amazon rainforest. 70% of Bolivia's land mass is part of the Amazon basin. And as a result, it's one of the most biodiverse parts of the world, as are many places in Central and South America. Um, it spans the foothills and jungle really gives a good idea of that. You think of it as thick jungle, the Amazon, but there's actually just big expanses of foothills um, that have ranches on them. Ranches are really big in Bolivia, I noticed, you know, rancho this, rancho that. And Yossi talks about that, you know, at length. Now, From what I could find, the Amazon, the space it takes up in Bolivia is 724,000 square kilometres. So if you're questioning how Yossi went missing, that's why. Now, unfortunately, um, nearly 1,400 square miles are deforested at the moment, uh, which works out to be the size, I believe that's yearly, which works out to be the size of Delaware, the state of Delaware almost. 
English is still not widely spoken in Bolivia. So from what I know of people who have been there, they say a knowledge of even basic conversational Spanish is a must. When Yossi arrived, international arrivals to Bolivia were at an all-time low from the time that records were kept in terms of tourism. I looked up the numbers and in 1970, the number of international arrivals into Bolivia was 22,000. By 1980, it had jumped to 155,000 annually. Now, if you think about like France, I believe they have like 100 million international arrivals a year or something crazy. Um, the data, the highest peak was December 2019 before lockdowns and stuff, obviously, where Bolivia had a record high of 1.2 million international arrivals. And then in 2020, that went down almost 80%. We don't currently have the statistics for 2021 to see if it's bouncing back. But we are in La Paz to begin this episode, the world's highest capital city, but not Bolivia's most populated city. That is the city of Santa Cruz. And the city of uh, Sucre remains Bolivia's constitutional capital, which is where the Supreme Court is. But La Paz is like um, the, well, it's the capital, but... It has, I think, uh, parliamentary bodies there, but it doesn't have the Supreme Courts, which are in Sucre. And there's been kind of an ongoing war about which one should be the capital, Sucre, Santa Cruz or La Paz. Now, the reason that I knew anything about Bolivia, which I always think of, is the book Marching Powder, which had a massive boom when it was released. Uh, I read it probably 15, 15 years ago. Uh, this takes place, it is a true story um, written by an Australian guy who was travelling around South America and he heard on the grapevine about a prison in downtown La Paz called San Pedro Prison, which you've probably heard of, which is essentially a law unto itself. It is out of this world. They produce most of Bolivia's cocaine within the prison. You can pay to stay there or could until marching powder took off and the Bolivian um, government and the guards there and the wardens of the prison had to very rapidly backtrack and deny that they were letting people do it, despite the fact that for years to make money, you could just turn up at the prison and pay to spend the night there. Prisoners pay for their rooms. They pay rent. You can pay to upgrade. It's like its own little real estate venture inside. Families live inside. Families can come and go. Women, children in the courtyards. You can run your own business. It is crazy. You can pay for favours um, and people can make money. Lonely Planet, um, so that's how I knew about it. And actually, at one point in the book Jungle, which is never talked about anywhere else, Yossi actually goes to San Pedro Prison, which I will get into. But to visit someone. And it just shows even back then what it was just the Wild West. It's a prison right in, you know, downtown La Paz. It's right there. Look up pictures of it. It is crazy. Now, apparently you can't do tours there anymore. They used to just tour you round. Um, money talks in these parts of the world, but basically the guy who wrote it, uh, Rusty Young, he's an Australian guy, he heard the story of a British guy who was in San Pedro prison for trafficking drugs and he went and lived with him in the prison for months and months to get the material to write the book uh, Marching Powder. 
Lonely Planet calls La Paz, quote, a mad carnival of jostling pedestrians, honking diesel, spewing minivans, street marches and cavalcades of vendors, unquote. So as I said, La Paz is 3,500 metres above sea levels and the Andes serve this kind of magnificent backdrop. And then you've got Lake Titicaca on its northwest edge, which spills over into Peru. Um, parts of it um, are still very held back developmentally. You can't drink tap water up in these parts. Um, here, Yossi and Marcus arrived and it was meant to be, as Yossi puts it, just another kind of stop on their travels. But obviously the way that things happen and these strange run-ins with people you meet, it puts you on a whole new trajectory. So here Yossi and Marcus ran into Kevin Gale. Kevin Gale is the third guy in our story who will play a pretty important part. Kevin was 29 years old. He was an American photographer. He came from Oregon, which is, you know, I was thinking about it in a very natural landscape. And I wonder if that played a part into his story, why he liked it down there. Kevin had spent a couple of years in South America, traveling all over, taking photos. I believe he was freelancing for a number of publications. Uh, it's hard to find information on him without giving too much away. He um, had known Marcus, he'd met him before, uh, he'd, tr he'd known him for around eight months on and off, they kept running into each other in different parts, the, it's a massive continent, uh, but the world's funny how that works, where you'll run into people you know in the least likely of places. Kevin was 29, you know, Marcus was 28 and Yossi was uh you know, 21, 22. So uh, Yossi kind of immediately looked up to Kevin because Marcus was very sensitive. He was always complaining. You know, he said he was a clairvoyant. He was always falling in love. And I find that men really look up to those male role models, even if they're just a few years older. And from what I can tell from what Yossi says, he he very quickly like liked Kevin and trusted Kevin. Uh, Kevin had like a can-do attitude, I believe, even though he came across as brash quite a lot. Uh, Kevin was inspired to photograph the sites of South America and he had been doing that. But at this point in time, uh, he was due just in a couple of weeks to fly back to the USA. He hadn't seen his family for two years by this point. There was no social media you rarely called home. You basically had to register, that Yossi talks about in the book, with local post offices so people knew where you were. You registered with local authorities, particularly if you're going um, into the wild, I suppose. You met people along the way who would kind of keep tabs on you. In this instance, the boys told people that they'd met in La Paz. If we're not back by this time, you know, send help. But that was really all you could do. And Kevin hadn't seen his family for ages. So he was flying back for Thanksgiving in the, in the November. But then he ran into Marcus and hadn't seen him for a while. And through that, he met Yossi. And pretty much within a day or two, their entire trajectory of what was happening changed and Kevin would end up putting off the flight home for Thanksgiving and he said, all right, I'll stay another month and I'll, I'll go home for Christmas instead. So we're, we're gearing up towards the tail end of 1981 and this is really where the movie picks up, the movie Jungle. It's 1980, um, 1981, Yossi's 21, he's a tall, slim and muscular Israeli with a very strong accent. He still has that today. 
as I talked about, I talked about, you know, uh, Marcus's personality. American Kevin was more bold, more seemingly easygoing, more tenacious and more enthusiastic about things, I suppose. The men all had unique personalities, which I found really met the stereotypes of their specific nationalities. Kevin kind of being the brush American, I guess, um, as they kind of explain him um, or outspoken. Marcus being Swiss, being more reserved and kind of thoughtful and and then Yossi being this kind of um, tough but adventurous Israeli um, and this comes up again later. But seemingly Kevin took the lead as the unofficial leader, probably just because of his age because Yossi said, you know, the age difference, he looked up to him. While the three men were travelling through La Paz and going to parties and meeting women and stuff, it was only, um, they only met Kevin about a day before this chance encounter. So Marcus and Marcus and Yossi had been living it up and then they run into Kevin. And then one day Marcus, sorry, Yossi was leaving his hotel. He'd gone to meet Marcus. Marcus was not there. He'd gone on a day trip with another girl that he'd met and he was saying he was in love with her. So Yossi left word at the hotel as he puts it in the book and was walking up the front door and and suddenly he felt a man kind of walking behind him. Um, and I'm going to read you a portion of the book that I screen capped um, because this is our first appearance of our fourth person in the story, a man called Carl Rupertcher. Ola, he greeted me. You know that Swiss man, don't you? He had a German accent, was in his late 30s, tall, about 5 feet 11 inches, broad-shouldered, solidly built, with brown hair receding above the temples. His eyes, which were slightly crossed, were blue. His clothes, which were worn but not threadbare, gave him the air of an adventurer. Unquote. This man introduced himself to Yossi as Carl Ruprichter and as Yossi kind of walked, he started chatting with him and this man was regaling him with stories of how many years he'd been in South America, that he was a a, a famed geologist. He worked particularly in Bolivia mining gold. Uh, He was an expert guide. He knew the Bolivian Amazon like the back of his hand. And when he heard that Yossi was interested in tribes that had been untouched before, Carl's eyes kind of lit up and he said he knew, you know, tribes in the deepest parts of the Bolivian Amazon that Yossi was looking for. He said to Yossi that actually I'm currently in in La Paz because I'm setting off for a three-month trip into right into the wilds of the Bolivian Amazon um, north of La Paz for about three months. Um, I'm doing a trip. We're going to be mining gold. And Yossi being the way that he was and looking up to Henry Charrier, he he kind of talks about how he was just enthralled by this guy straight away. Like what an interesting, fascinating, adventurous guy. This is like the Henry Charrier, you know. Um, So basically they met up with Yossi went home and he talked to Marcus and Kevin about this guy that they'd met um, and how he was down here for this clandestine reason. He was mining gold and doing all these amazing things. And Marcus was a bit apprehensive. He wanted to go travelling with this girl that he'd met. 
Um, but Kevin was immediately on board. I want to meet this guy. And they actually met up with him a handful of times before they went. It makes out like they only met him once and then set off with him in the movie. But in the book, they talk about four or five times meeting up with him over the course of maybe a week. So Carl basically said when they all met up with him, Kevin and Marcus said, we'll hear him out. And Carl said, look, you've met the right man. If this is what you want to do, I will take you uh, we will meet up with guides that I are on my kind of payroll. They will take us into the deepest parts of the Bolivian Amazon. Um, where no one has gone, you will have the experience of a lifetime. And we will also mine for gold every day. And in the book, he says, for every day that we're there, you'll get like a gram of gold. And the guys were like, oh my God, this is you know, amazing. Now, Yossi later would say, quote, I think he saw the naivety on my face. I drank up every word he said. I was begging him to take me with him, unquote. Carl even bought a map out and he marked their destination on Bolivia's northwest on the map with a red X. Now, they tried to get a more detailed map uh, in different shops in the book Jungle. Yossi talks about it as they went around buying supplies for this trip and they couldn't get one. And by this point, Carl had really started talking himself up at every chance he got. He would talk about, um, it's kind of crazy actually, and it got worse and worse um, over time. He would talk about, kind of allude to, I guess, um, <laughs> I don't know what I should include right now. Uh, he would kind of say all the adventures he'd had uh, basically, and that he said, look, I don't need a detailed map because I know this area with no help, but you can get yourself a general map if you want. So Yossi bought a general map and luckily this would be one of the few things that he would have with him, not that it would help that much. Now, the book, the movie indicates that Carl did this for free. Uh, and they kind of condense a lot of information. And that's why shows like I Survived and uh, people commenting on that and the movie Jungle and just going off that and thinking that's gospel isn't right. And that's why the book's really good. Basically, the way it worked out was that Carl and Yossi were one day running errands, picking up food and supplies that they were going to take with them, which is a whole other story. Kevin had gone off to do something and Marcus was off with his new girlfriend and they stopped off outside a post office. You had to register when you traveled back in the day and people would send it to whatever post office you're registered at. And that's how you communicated with back home at this time. My mum, this exact same time was in Europe doing the exact same thing. Um, and Carl said to Yossi, I just have to pop in here to check my mail. And he popped in and he came out with a letter in his hand and kind of a sad expression on his face. And he said to Yossi, basically, he said, I've just got word from my uncle. He owns a ranch kind of in this region, of, you know, a couple of hours flight from La Paz. Um, he is alone. He uh, lives out here and has no relatives here. And I help him with ranch stuff. And I have to go and collect a truck for him that he's bought ordered from Chile and I'll have to deliver it to him. So unfortunately the trip's off and you can't come with us on this uh, big trip that I was doing with guides to mine and things like that. And Yossi was really like kind of pissed off. Like we've just packed all this stuff. Can't it wait? And the way that he describes it in the book is that Carl very quickly 
changes his tune and he says, well, I could put it off, but I need money and I'm missing this, you know, big trip, which will pay. So you'll have to pay me you three. So it's gone from this buddy, buddy adventure to, as Yossi put it, this kind of wheeler dealer, uh, glorified tour guide, so to speak. Reading from Jungle by Yossi Ginsberg, quote, look, Yossi, there is a way. If you really want a taste of the jungle, I could plan out your route and be your guide. I know the jungle like the palm of my hand. You'll see, but I couldn't do it for nothing. His suggestion was a terrific letdown. Up until then, I had admired him, seen him in a romantic light. I thought he was the last of the great white adventurers, risking his life in the primeval rainforest, searching for treasure, gold and uranium, staving off wild beasts and savages, making his living hunting jaguars. And here he was figuring up nickels and dimes, offering package deals and guided tours. How much would you want? I inquired coolly. Well, 6,000 Bolivianos would be enough. Of course, I would pay my share of all the expenses, tickets, food and so on. It really isn't that much. What do you say? I'll have to talk it over with Marcus and Kevin, I answered abruptly. Unquote. So at the time, 6,000 Bolivianos was about 150 US dollars and he was like taking three guys with him back in the day for a month. He said it would be a month uh, $450. Now today, I believe it's around 700, 700 US dollars, but I can't be sure. So they met up with Marcus and Kevin, um, sorry, Marcus and, and Carl, um, and discussed the plan. Uh, and Carl explained what was going to happen. Quote, there will come to a place called Cura Playa, a gold mining camp. It's still in use, but when we get there, it'll be deserted because they only work it from June to October. In Cura Playa, we can pan for gold, Carl went on, and we'll stop over for five days or so. We'll build a raft and spend the rest of the time panning for gold in the river. I can guarantee you one gram of gold for each day's work, five days of work, five grams of gold apiece. He calculated the price of gold and concluded that we would make money from our adventure. Carl apparently noticed that we were all a bit sceptical. You know what? I'll buy your gold, he declared. You only have to pay me 3,000 Bolivianos now and you can give me the other half in gold. But what if we don't find anything, I asked. There isn't the slightest chance that you won't find gold, Carl answered. I worked there for two years and I found gold. Kevin and Marcus smiled tolerantly, but I had gold fever. I was eager, full of expectations, unquote. So keep that in mind in the book, like what Carl says about finding, um, giving them a discount and then when they find the gold, he can pay them back. Just like keep that in mind as we get more into Carl and events that will take place because I've thought, you know, a lot about that, kind of what was his, what was his motivation without giving away too much. Days after meeting Carl, the four men were on their way. Yossi actually left most of his belongings along with Kevin. They just took a pack each, uh, very basic, which I'll get into. Uh, Yossi sent a letter home to his brother and I can't get into it too much on part one. It's really hard for me to tell the story without ruining anything. Uh, but this letter is important to me and I'll explain more in part two. He sent the letter to his brother, um, I believe, uh, that brother, it's Moshe, Moshi, how they say it, but 
I think it means, is that a name or does it mean brother? Because I see it quite a lot. He sent a letter to his brother, which would probably take ages to get back, explaining what was happening and leaving details of who he was going with in case. Uh, Kevin and Marcus, like, registered themselves as where they were going with their local embassies. They did tick all the boxes uh, initially, especially in La Paz. Uh, Carl did not do this. Yossi left his belongings with people that he had met in La Paz who lived there because they'd spent quite a lot of time there. Uh, and he said he'd be back for them. He didn't take valuables. He left his gold watch, he said, and things like that. And he essentially said to them as well as other people, if we're not back by December 15th, raise the alarm. So they did for 1981, some of, some good stuff. Um, now I'm going to read to you from jungle. Got to read you, uh, the letter that, or part of the letter that, uh, Yossi wrote home to his brother, because I feel like it's important. He just opens it up by greeting him. And then he says, quote, I'm taking a flight tomorrow from La Paz to Apoyo with three other guys. Kevin Gale, age 29, American, Marcus Stamm, age 28, Swiss, Carl Ruprechter, age about 35, Austrian. The American and Swiss guys are very good friends of mine. The Austrian is a geologist. He has been working in Bolivia for the past nine years looking for gold and uranium and other precious metals in the jungle. He's coming with us as our paid guide. He has an uncle with a ranch in Bolivia. The uncle's name is Josef uh, Ruprechter. Uh, and his address is Santa Rosa Ranch, El Progreso Reyes, Benny. Felicity, just keep that in mind. From Apoyo, we will walk to a village called um, Azriasmus on the uh, Tuki River. Um, I am planning to fly from Riberalta, the last place on our route, back to La Paz and have a train and buses from there to Uncle Nello in Sao Paulo. Uh, Felicity, again, Yossi had an uncle living here like a lot of um, Israelis did at the time. I think they were the highest tourist numbers were coming from Israel and expat numbers. If I haven't called home by the first week in January, something has happened to me. I'm sure that everything will go right and there's nothing to worry about. I'm being somewhat melodramatic, but warned you to know all the details just in case. Tell mum and dad that I've gone to some little island or village up in the mountains for a month. Try to think of something that won't worry them because I won't be writing at all. Tell them you got a letter on that I feel fine and I'll be at my uncle out I'll be at our uncle soon. Be seeing you, brother, Yossi. And then Yossi posted the letter. Yossi told the Discovery Channel, uh, as well as talking about it in the book, that very early on he was a bit perplexed by the fact that Carl said they didn't have to take any food provisions. Yossi was expecting to take at least some tins of things. Uh, Carl like, had a sack that was like his backpack. They didn't really have much they each had a pack but he thought they'd be taking more than what they took essentially Carl said all they needed was a few bags of rice some beans and some salt and he also said that they needed to get hold of a rifle uh, for protection in the jungle uh, and a couple of machetes and things like that um, now Yossi was a bit confused because they were living in a military dictatorship and he says in the book how are we going to get a rifle like that's impossible and Carl basically points them in the direction of a guy in San Pedro prison that he knows who Yossi had actually heard of because there was this weird uh back in Israel 
there was a weird book that was published. It was like a guide to South America, like a Lonely Planet guide. And San Pedro Prison and visiting this guy was in the guide. And that's been proven. It was this weird thing, but that's not totally weird because, as I said, San Pedro Prison was a tourist attraction. Now, this guy's name's Canadian Pete. Uh, he's a Canadian who was in San Pedro Prison for uh, drug-related stuff. And Carl sends them to go see Canadian Pete. So uh, essentially... Um, uh, Yossi and Kevin go to San Pedro. They see Canadian Pete and then he gives them a pointer towards a guy that they can buy a rifle from essentially on a local black market, which is how they end up with it. Uh, so Carl said that they didn't need food because the jungle was full of it. He said he'd eaten monkeys and he'd killed jaguars, which are, you know, wild in the Amazon, especially in Bolivia, uh, and that you didn't need anything. You could completely live off the Amazon, which isn't true, especially if you're, uh, you've never been there before and you don't know how to do it. Um, so Carl, Kevin, Marcus, and uh, Yossi took a bush plane, which is a small, it was very kind of a primitive bush plane to the city of Apoyo, which is north of La Paz. And that's their starting, their jumping off point for this trip that they're going to take. From Apoyo, they would then hike for, you know, uh, days through ranches and the foothills. It's very flat. And then they would ultimately get to uh, this Azarasmus village where they had a raft waiting for them. Carl said that the villagers had built them a raft and they would raft down the river essentially and then they would get to their spot and then they would loop around and then fly back from the nearest city that had an airport uh, back to La Paz and this would be around a month. So when they got to Apoyo, it's a very small town but there are local police and they were at the airport there and this is only in the book so that's why I'm glad I read it because it filled in another thing for me. When they got there, the police said you, sh- you need to go to the local police station to register that you are here, not only because it's safety for tourists but because it's a um, it's a military dictatorship and they want to know where people are at the time. Now, I meant to reference that Carl spoke Spanish but Yossi explains it as uh, he mostly spoke German and Marcus being Swiss would often translate because Carl spoke, as Yossi put it, I think he said it was peculiar Spanish. It stood out to him that for a guy who'd been there for a decade, his Spanish was strange. So often Carl would, when he was connecting with people when they were planning this trip. He would speak German. Marcus spoke Swiss German and he could understand German. And then Marcus would translate into Spanish, like Marcus was kind of their conduit. But most of the time, as is in the movie, Thomas Kretschmann speaking English in the movie, Carl spoke English really well. Now, the heat when they got to this town was oppressive um, and it hadn't yet come up to the rainy season, but that was due to start within the next week or two. So the timing of this was pretty sketchy. And they began their hike through rural ranches. Now, the movie makes out like they just flew to the jungle and started, but that's not the way it works out. And in the book Jungle, they talked about walking for days, stopping at rural ranches, how one woman kind of 
let them sit down and like gave them water and stuff but how they noticed like human slavery on these ranches with little kids and things like that and how it was really affecting markers uh hearing these stories there's also a story that's not in the movie and it's not mentioned anywhere but the book where it stood out to me because Carl clearly from the beginning did not have any respect for animals like as individual souls. He saw things, I think, as black or white and he saw animals as either serving a purpose, they either protected you or you ate them Um, and there was no in-between. And this becomes more and more apparent as the story goes on, how he talks about animals and things. But I wish that they'd included this part in the movie because it added another layer to Carl Rupert in the sense that when they stopped at a ranch, there was a dog there that the owners were selling and he he talks about how Carl said we're going to buy the dog to take us with because I've been in the jungle before and I had a dog with me once in the Amazon and a jaguar went to attack me and the dog ran after the jaguar and then he starts laughing and he talks about how uh, the dog attacked the jaguar and the jaguar attacked the dog and they basically tore each other the sh- to shreds and he's like laughing about it and then they buy the dog and for days they like drag this dog and at one point he talks about how Carl is carrying the dog kind of like how you carry a sheep over your shoulders because the dog just wouldn't walk because it was so like tired and emaciated and Carl just didn't give a fuck now because um the book ended. I don't know what happened to the dog. Like my, they don't really talk about it in any other coverage, but I actually presume that, uh, the dog just died, uh, because it was on its last legs anyway. And it was just a weird kind of addition to the story that added another layer to Carl kind of gets off on really messed up stories. And I think he likes getting rises out of people. Uh, so from there, they basically would go, down, uh, they'd hike alongside the Tuiki River, which is a, a, a really big river where a lot of the action coming up takes place. And they would arrive in the village called um, Azariamus. I have issues saying it. And they say it sounds so cool saying it in Spanish. And, and um, this would be the last civilization of sorts. They would pick up the raft that Carl said he'd commissioned. Uh, and then they, they would basically raft down to their final point which would take weeks Uh, there would be no one around and they would reach their little Shangri-La where he said they would mine for gold and actually get gold and make money now when they got to um Azarimus the people were really friendly and hospitable uh they were clearly used to this being the final point for some people but most people once they got to this remote point would turn around and go back uh they weren't generally going on and actually uh in the movie and in the book they talk about how the locals were saying to to Kevin and Yossi and Carl and uh well Kevin and Yossi and Marcus at least it's rainy season starting like any day this is incredibly dangerous do not go down that river we don't know what this guy is telling you but you do not want to be going down that river because you'll you'll reach rapids that you won't be able to control and you'll die. Um, and despite that, the guys were very young and green and Carl had kind of brushed off everything. Actually, when they got to the first city, they hiked out of Apoyo. Um, when I talked about the police asking them to register, Carl Rupert refused. Like he just said, just keep walking boys. He goes, it's just red tape. I'm not registering uh, myself being here, which is another thing that I want you to remember. So, 
The group set off on foot from um, Azarimus and um, began traveling up along the um, Azarimus River and along the mountains. Um, they set off on foot because there was no raft initially. So they were doing it on foot at this time because what Kyle said did not eventuate. Um, and Carl was regaling them with stories of his time in the jungle and he was actually starting to like piss them off, uh, especially Marcus I think was very in tune with his bullshit detector was going off. Um, Kevin I think was butting heads because he was the closest to Carl's personality uh, and Yossi was just getting I think a little bit miffed. Um, it very quickly became apparent to them that maybe Carl Rupertor did not have the knowledge of this area. I mean he'd clearly been there to this village doing whatever, but it became apparent that he did not have the knowledge of the jungle and survival of the jungle that he would claim to have. Um, it would get worse and worse. The trek was meant to be just a few days uh, and it would all be worth it. But as they trekked for weeks and weeks and they ran out of food, it very quickly tensions built. We're talking about a bunch of men who generally they don't talk out the differences when things are really bad. They'll just start yelling at each other. And all of that just started happening. And it really, that's one of the better parts of the movie. Um, Carl Thomas Critchman kind of starting to go a little bit cuckoo, whether you believe um, he already was or not. A journalist called Steve Hendricks did a piece on Yossi's story for the Washington Post in 1998. And he did his own journey down there to see where this all happened. And I just want to read an excerpt of his article, which really paints a portrait of this part of the world. Quote, Before Ginsburg, this remote corner of northwest Bolivia was all but unknown to travellers. But now here we are, where the Amazon lowlands ripple into the first valleys of the Andes, flanked by riverbanks that alternate between stark red cliffs and impenetrable walls of jungle. All sorts of disembodied noises echo from behind those thick green curtains, grunts, crashes, the basso screams of howler monkeys. My wife Anne elbows me occasionally, pointing skyward as flocks of parrots fly raucous sorties um, out of the canopy gloom and into the bright sky above the river. We see these absurdly coloured birds again on the cliffs, clinging to the sheer red walls as they pick at nutrients in the clay, unquote. When Yossi and the boys set off, it was rainy season and as the villagers um, at Azarimus said, this quickly, you know, rainy season quickly came upon them. They were only meant to be gone for uh, a few days from this point before returning to that particular village. And it became weeks. And obviously uh, they were just walking around completely soaked, muddy and um, not in good shape. And if you know anything about constantly being wet and the effects of it on your health, uh, this would spell disaster very early on for these guys. They would camp basically in their tents. The boys had a tent, but Carl slept with like a piece of plastic sheeting over him. Yossi talks about it in the book. He said that's all he needed. And they essentially just had the clothes on their back. Now, one of the only good things about the movie was that uh, Daniel Radcliffe was literally wearing identical clothes to what Yossi 
went missing in and they weren't hiking clothes like you'd expect people to be wearing now athleisure wear or hiking boots uh they were wearing jeans and like check shirts so Carl led the way seemingly confident in his abilities and knowledge of the region and regaling them with stories of killing jaguars and really starting to piss them off soon enough the little food that they had to sustain themselves remember it's four men and they had a couple of bags of rice, some cooking utensils, a machete, um, a torch, uh, a lighter, uh, a map, no clothes really, uh, some beans and some salt. They ran out of food completely and it would be days trek back to the village of Azariamus um, or if not weeks and the boys were like, well, what do we do now? And it did not seem that Carl really had the skills that he uh, claimed to have to kill game, as he put it, throughout the jungle. Um, however, it seems that at some point he had eaten quite a lot of things in the jungle because he was pretty kind of gung-ho about eating it, had no issues with it. So um, one of the things that really kind of stands out in the movie to people and that they rehash again and again in the retelling at least for mainstream media of Yossi's story, is that they say that the group ate monkeys, howler monkeys, which is true. Um, but first they had to, you know, catch them. And initially they had the gun and they had, um, I believe it was a revolver, and they had uh, machetes and stuff like that. But later when Yossi's alone, he doesn't have any of that stuff. Uh, Yossi said later, quote, we were constantly hungry. We would walk long days having eaten nothing at all. We shot at monkeys and ate them. I would have put anything in my mouth. If you'd offered me human flesh, I wouldn't have refused to indulge. When you get that hungry, nothing is disgusting, unquote, which is a pretty universal thing I've heard, you know, especially during the Holocaust and people who were surviving massive things like this. Now it's, it's depicted in the movie and also they talk about it in the book, but uh, Carl Ruprecht, uh, um, when they would kill the monkeys, uh, Yossi said, quote, it was gruesome. You could see the wilderness in his eyes, unquote. It, Carl would go like animalistic or really primitive when he'd kill them and eat them. Like his eyes were really crazy. Um, and at one point he says to the boys, and I don't know whether he's just trying to scare them or just another bullshit story, or he's actually a full-blown psycho, uh, he tells them that monkey meat tastes pretty much identical to human meat um, and the boys kind of just like laugh it off. But Thomas Crutchman does a really good job in the movie because they're sitting around a campfire, you know, in the wilderness eating this monkey meat. Well, at least three of them are. And um, he just looks wild with the flames, you know, licking. Um, you can see it in his irises. Now, Yossi and Carl and Marcus very quickly started to think that uh, Yossi and Kevin and Marcus, sorry, I get Carl and Kevin confused, very quickly realised that uh, Carl may not have been the guy that he claimed to be. Now, when I said that three of them were eating monkey meat, this is where it starts to go really downhill. Unfortunately for Marcus Stam, um, our sensitive Swiss guy, uh, he would not eat the monkey meat. He flat out refused. I think not only because he couldn't bring himself to physically eat it, but actually the ethical portion. There's things that um, Yossi says that in the interview with Discovery on that I Survived whatever show, uh, which I didn't really like that much, 
Yossi basically says that Marcus said, but you can save their life. Like the monkey, it deserves to live. And, and Yossi was getting pissed off at him. He was like, look, we're starving, like, and we're the top of the food chain and trying to kind of reason. Kevin was getting really pissed off. Carl was getting really pissed off. But Marcus, like, flat out refused. He, he he wouldn't do it and he didn't do it and he was getting weaker. Now, on top of that, poor Marcus had developed a condition which is horrific, known as trench foot, which you may have heard of. This was coined trench foot because soldiers in the First World War, but also later in the Second World War and Vietnam, who were constantly in trenches, in mud, in wet shoes, wet socks. Uh, they also call it uh, immersion syndrome, I believe. It's basically when your feet are not dry uh, for long periods of time, you develop a fungal infection of your foot. It is extremely gross. Your foot, it's extremely painful. Your feet essentially almost explode with pustules. Um, your feet, if you look up pictures of it, there's some pretty tasty pictures out there of people with trench foot. Ultimately, they often end up amputating your foot. You need immediate medical attention. And Marcus had the early stages of trench foot. Now, Yossi and Kevin didn't understand the how painful this was because they said later on that Marcus complained all the time about everything. So they felt like he was just bunging it on a little bit. But actually in a full circle way later, Yossi would know exactly firsthand what Marcus was going through. Um, Paul Marcus was dragging his foot along um, in complete pain and they were essentially ignoring him and that's where a lot of hate comes from. But you've got to remember these are young guys, they're hungry and they're under stress, you know, they don't know how to handle it and you got someone in your ear complaining all the time. And finally the men decided that Marcus like had to put his foot up essentially you can't keep just walking around in wet shoes and not drying your feet and stuff um they couldn't take it anymore and they decided that this particular trek was going nowhere and they had to return to the village of um Azariamus. they had to regroup Marcus had to rest his foot dry his feet uh and keep them dry um and they essentially, the three of them blamed Marcus for putting an end to this first attempt at this trip. So Marcus really felt like the world was against him. I have a lot of sympathy for Marcus. Um, I'll talk more about it in part two. The four men finally, uh, after being gone for uh, like six weeks when they were meant to be gone for a month, made it back to Azariamus and Carl had a new plan. Instead of trekking on foot this time, they were going to get that raft put together. They were going to go down the Tuiki River, which would be way easier on them. Uh, Marcus didn't have to be on his feet and it would be quicker to get to their destination. Now, this river route would take them right down to this small gold quarry that he talked about called Curaplia. And from there, they would pan for gold and then they would continue on down to um, uh, Ruhrenbach, I think is how you say it. Uh, this is where there's a regional airport and they'd fly back to La Paz and it would be another month or so. So they regrouped, they restocked in this village. Uh, the locals were very hospitable. They commissioned locals to make them a handmade raft, which was made with logs. Uh, and they set off again, stomachs fuller and, and seemingly um, Marcus's foot kind of on the mend. 
But before long, it became apparent on this massive river that Yossi says is about 100 metres wide. It is huge if you look at pictures. Now, one of the funny things is when you look it up, you can't get many pictures because this is such a remote part of the world that it doesn't even really show up on Google Maps. Certain villages that I tried to look up, which I'll talk more about on part two, you just can't get the data because it hasn't been tapped like by Google Maps. But before long, it became apparent to them something really frightening. And that was that Carl seemingly could not swim. He was scared of water and he'd never been rafting before. Now, he had told them all about all his, you know, regaling them with stories of rafting and all that stuff. But when push came to shove and they started getting closer to parts where there are ginormous rapids that will toss you around and you can essentially go over a massive waterfall, Carl started to panic and I think that's when he realised that he had to um, come clean about a few things. Yossi said, quote, on the raft, Carl argued with the others, even though he didn't know anything about rafting. There was no cooperation, no friendship. It was hell. When the group arrived basically where the Tuiki River merges with another major river, uh, Carl told them that going ahead would be basically a death sentence. They had to go through a very narrow canyon where the beaches, like there's gravel beaches on the side by this point um, that lead into the jungle, it gives way to those beaches disappear and it's just walls on either side of the canyon. And he said that it was so rocky and so unpredictable with the rapids and the current, it speeds up like 10 times the speed that they wouldn't be able to pass through using their raft. Um, And then suddenly he told them, I actually can't swim. And I don't want to do this anymore. So after all of this and changing all their travel plans and this guy telling them all the stuff, turns out he's lied about so much of it, which they had already started to get the idea of. And he said, I'm not going on this raft anymore. And they stopped off at one of the beaches. And this is one of the more memorable scenes in the movie where they're all yelling at each other. And there is a pivotal point where a decision has to be made. It was breaking point. Marcus wanted out now. His foot was completely effed. Um, The poor dude, when he took off his shoes uh, and they saw how bad his foot was from sitting on the raft and even just getting wet on the raft or just how much the fungal infection had progressed, they honestly said it looked like, you know, he'd need to have medical attention within, you know, the coming days to not lose his foot. Your foot essentially turns like black. It looks like frostbite. Um, it's, it's horrific. Um, and people, luckily with my condition, I don't, I have um, hyperhidrosis, which is excessive sweating, but I don't have it of the feet, thank God. Now, some people have hyperhidrosis of the feet. It's one of the most common things as well as the palms. And they're actually at risk of trench foot just from merely wearing shoes. Um, you don't even need to be in the jungle or anything like that. Um, and so they have to constantly keep their feet dry, constantly using towels, you know, but Marcus hadn't done this for what seems to be months at this point. Um, and it wasn't looking good. Marcus said he wanted out. He wanted to go as well. He didn't want to be on the raft anymore. He wanted out. Carl said that he knew a direct route from where they were standing right there on that gravel beach, cut through the jungle right behind them. He said it was no more than a week, I believe. And they would be at a village where they would be able to get help. And it had a regional airport. Um, and, so they were going to trek out of there. Seemingly, Carl thought that Kevin and Yossi would follow suit. 
and obviously Marcus did too. Uh, so what happened next kind of shocked them. Um, Kevin said, no, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done with the walking. I'm done with Carl. I'm staying on that raft and I'm going down the river. It's safer that way than getting back out there into the jungle. And Yossi was standing between the two, Marcus and Carl on one side, Kevin on the other. And he basically made the decision whether or not they all ended up hiking out or the group split. And Yossi in that moment, when he looked at Kevin on one side and Marcus and Carl on the other, uh, he said, I'm going with Kevin, Gail, the American. Yossi kind of talks about this uh, in an interview. He said in that moment, his gut told him, his judgment told him to go with Kevin Gale. Uh, Whether he looked up to him, whether it was because of that, maybe it was a premonition. Marcus was really upset. He kind of felt like he had been abandoned by his friends and he'd been travelling with Yossi for such a long time. Yossi had only just met Kevin and suddenly Yossi's choosing Kevin. But I understand Yossi's um, why he did what he did and I understand everybody's choices in this actually. I understand why Marcus left to hike out. I understand uh, not really Carl so much and I definitely understand Kevin. I actually in this instance I've thought a lot about it. I would have gone with Kevin as well. Um just in terms of having it together and being able, he seemed to be holding it together the best of everyone. Yossi said, don't worry, get back to La Paz. We'll meet up there, you know, um, in a few weeks' time. We'll meet at this specific hotel. Um, You'll get back way before us. Just wait for us, please. You know, and if you need to go anywhere, leave go back to the hotel we were all staying at and just wait for us. And they had that plan and they had the relative date where they'd be back. Yossi said that as Marcus and Carl disappeared into the thick foliage of the Amazon rainforest, he remembered Marcus' stem turning around and weakly waving goodbye to Kevin and Yossi and they disappeared into the thick foliage. Kevin and Yossi were now on their own. They didn't have a guide, but as they saw it, Carl didn't seem to be a guide anyway, so it didn't make any difference that he wasn't there anymore. And they also said, you know, they didn't have Marcus holding them back anymore and complaining and with his foot and all that. And Yossi said for a really short amount of time, there was a bit of elation and it was really exciting. Uh, They were finally finally free to start, you know, this big trip. Uh, Carl may not have known much, but unfortunately he was right about what was coming at the end of that canyon. The banks very quickly that they had relied upon, the gravel beaches suddenly, as Carl had said would happen, disappeared. And instead of the banks on either side of um, the river, there was just tall walls on either side and behind that just the thickest Amazon jungle uh, that you could think of. The water speed quadrupled and the currents were intense and they basically hit whitewater rapids and Kevin and Yossi hit some of the worst ones ever Um, and it was also the wet season as well. They were now in the San Pedro Canyon that Carl had warned them about and also that the locals back in the village had warned them about and their little kind of man-made custom log raft was soon, you know, 
being tossed around and they were really concerned. The raft soon kind of smashed them up against a giant rock that was positioned in the middle of the river. Um, and the raft, Yossi was still attached to the raft. Uh, the two men, as they approached this rock, lay down on the raft. Kevin was flung into the water um, and Yossi kind of managed to hold on. Kevin, uh, I don't know whether because he was fit or he'd grown up in Oregon and maybe he was a good swimmer and um, good with the outdoors, he managed to make a play for uh, the last riverbank um, or this tiny little riverbank that he could find. Um, and he, sw- he swam against these currents and it's a really memorable part of the movie. And he was able to make it and he was calling to Yossi, Yossi, do it, leave the raft, come on, like... Um, you can do it. And as he did that, um, Yossi was drenched. He was exhausted. He was hungry and he was over it. Um, Yossi was still attached to the raft and the raft detached from the rock and went hurtling down, uh, this canyon, down this river, um, basically right towards a waterfall that Carl had told them was right there. And then they wouldn't survive. And the last thing that Yossi remembered was hearing Kevin Gale, you know, screaming Yossi as, as he went hurtling down. Uh, Yossi was smashed around in the rapids. He went miles down and he went basically right over this massive waterfall. It's amazing that he even survived this initial part. Um, Yossi probably managed to survive due to his military training in the Israeli Navy. That's what I was thinking. Eventually, these rapids after miles gave way to these calmer waters. Uh, The beaches, gravel beaches began reappearing and he exited the canyon um, and there were no longer these high walls on either side of the canyon. So he was able to drag himself to a shore of sorts. But he was miles downstream from where he last saw Kevin. He had no idea where he'd last seen Kevin. The distance that he'd travelled would be days trek to Kevin and he'd never find him again, at least he thought. But thankfully, through all this, he'd been able to hold on to a small pack uh, before the raft was completely, it was gone down the river um, and he would never see the raft again. He'd still managed, luckily, to hold on to his small pack that contained his part of the provisions. When they split up, Marcus and Carl took half the provisions, which was, I think, a bag of rice. And Kevin and um, Yossi took the rest. And so in Yossi's, he had a small kind of uh, pack of rice. It was tiny. Mosquito repellent, um, a lighter, his map, which was now soaked. And it was also not a thorough map. It was just a very general one of Bolivia. Unfortunately, he did not have the revolver with him, um, that was with Carl, uh, nor did he have a machete in his particular pack, I believe that was with Kevin. So he was screwed. Yossi lay in his soaking clothes on this gravel bank, completely spent and unable to get up in the wettest season of the most uncharted part of the Bolivian Amazon rainforest. And then night began to fall. And as Steve Hendricks talks about in the Washington Post article, those noises start to come out. And Yossi began to think about all the tales of the jungle, the jaguars appearing out of nowhere and Carl's stories that he'd told them and hearing the howler monkeys screaming and grunts coming from the jungle. And Yossi wouldn't know it, but 
he thought that Carl Rupert uh, was making up his close call run-ins with Jaguars, but before long, Yossi himself would literally come face to face with one, and that would be the least of his worries. Um, soon, the worst storm in a decade would hit the area, just when Yossi found himself in the worst kind of predicament that you could find yourself. As the Washington Post wrote in 1998, quote, over the course of the next 20 days, there must have been times that he would have preferred never to have surfaced at all from the black grip of the Tuiki River, unquote. And that's where I'm going to leave you until part two. Hope that you learnt a bit and you are on the edge of your seat. Try not to spoil it for yourself. If you can't control yourself, I understand. But um, even if you know the story, or you think you know the story, there's more coming. Um, we've got some crazy stories of survival, some really insane, um, very confronting stuff that Yossi had to do. Um, and yeah, I'm trying not to, I'm trying to word it very carefully in case you've noticed to not ruin anything. Um, so I will be back probably in the next. Uh, I'm going to try to put them close together so you don't have to wait that much uh, in the next two days uh, with the next part, uh, which will be Yossi's time in the jungle and subsequent events after that. I hope that it will be out. Um, I'm aiming for by Saturday uh, in Australia and I'm ahead of most of you guys. Um, it won't be any later than that, I promise. Um, enjoy the rest of your week.